It's been noisy on Capitol Hill these couple of weeks with all of the hearings, but contractors who listen closely will hear the sounds of opportunity as agencies discuss their spending plans for 2024 with more on how to sharpen your hunting skills. Federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And I guess uh, people should know what to listen for and where to look for clues to spending in 2024. Tom, the action right now is in the House and Senate appropriations committees as they go through their annual ritual of hearing from cabinet secretaries and other senior executive branch officials talking about the president's FY24 budget request. And while some people have claimed that that request is dead on arrival, the fact is, Tom, there's going to be a lot of that's in that budget request that makes its way through either in part or in whole at the end of the congressional appropriations process. So if you're a government contractor, this is a great time to pay attention to what is happening up on Capitol Hill. Listen to what it is the cabinet secretaries say, not just in their prepared remarks, but in the questions and answers they uh, have with members of the appropriations panels. Also, I think it's important to hear just what's on the mind of the appropriators. They're going to have an impact on how legislation is formed, Tom, that's going to shape the way the money is spent in the next fiscal year. So if you're paying attention right now to both what the executive branch is saying and the questions that congressmen and senators are asking, as a contractor, you're going to begin to get a better idea of what your following year could look like. Yes, and besides just simply learning the specific programs and spending lines that are contemplated by the agencies or by Congress, you can also get a sense of the tone of what's driving the agency, and that can inform your business development so that you can talk the language to an agency that it wants to hear. Tom, you're absolutely right. Talking the language couldn't really be more important for a government contractor. This is where we get issues today, like we're talking about in the in the IT world, zero trust and cybersecurity. And you know, years ago, it was cloud and data storage and things of that nature. So the buzzwords change over time. And right now is a good way to find out what your customer agency buzzwords, what their emphases are. And one of them is going to be customer experience, uh, but there will be others. So, you know, if you're looking at what the agencies are saying on the Hill, you don't even have to read all the testimony. Look at the summaries, the press releases, uh, and again, the questions and answers after the testimony is done. I think you can get a lot of clues about uh, how you can shape your message, how you can fine-tune your sales approach, and where the opportunities are going to be next year. And we should also point out, as you are pointing out, that here we are in just about the doorstep of April, and the fiscal year 2023 is already shifting to cleanup from acquisition (laughs) of opportunities at this point. Right. Surprise. We're just about at quarter three, and I think that means a couple of things for government contractors. One of the first things it means, Tom, is that the window for having those new meet-and-greet meetings is going to start to come to a close. Uh, they never really, It never really stops, but it becomes more difficult to get meet-and-greet meetings from, say, about mid-June on. Uh, the time to have those, those new background discussions, is at the beginning of the year up until right about now. So if you don't have those meet-and-greet meetings with new prospects on the calendar, you have a very short period of time to do that. So I recommend that you get that done now because in about five or six weeks, you're probably not going to be able to do that anymore for this year. 
We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And there's another phenomenon, and that is that because the greater economy outside of the federal market is pretty rough right now, and agencies don't know what's going to happen with monetary policy and so forth. Borrowing is getting difficult. There's a bank crisis that nobody can seem to quite tamp down to zero. And so that affects how companies that have large commercial market components, sometimes when they cut back the marketing and development efforts commercially, federal gets sort of swept into that general tightening. And that can be a real mistake, can't it, with respect to getting revenue for your company? Uh, it really can be. Yeah, it's one of the things that I talk about with companies all the time is that uh, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind, Tom. Uh, you can have the greatest solution that you want, but if people don't know about it or they haven't heard about it lately, chances are they've heard about a lot of other things since you last went to talk to them. Now is the time to coordinate your marketing and sales message. Make sure that uh, people know about your solutions and not just how about, about the solutions themselves, but how they meet an agency's specific needs, Tom. I am amazed constantly by the number of companies that go to the federal market who try to do uh, marketing on a shoestring or really don't do much at all and then are surprised that they don't get the results they're looking at. I'm not a big believer in spending tons of money, but you sometimes you do have to spend a little bit of money to make a lot more money, and that's what I'm talking about. And switching to the contractor side here, you have noted the Office of Strategic Capital set up by the Defense Department. I wanted to discuss that with you because it's one of these trending ways that contractors, especially small business, can get access to capital and also access to federal contracts outside of the regular FAR and all of that entailment. Right, Tom, this is the Small Business Investment Company, and as you mentioned, it's being run by the Department of Defense's Office of Strategic Capital. One of the things that really caught my attention about this project is that it's another source of funding for small businesses that's independent of the annual appropriations process. How many times have we talked about projects that can't be started at the beginning of a fiscal year because the government is operating under a continuing resolution? It happens every year. And one of the things I talk to companies about is, well, you have to look for non-appropriated funds so that you can at least get something started. Capital funds are one way to do that. So this small business investment company operated out of DOD and coordination with the Small Business Administration could be another channel for small businesses to explore that's independent of that regular appropriations process, particularly if you're a small business that has a really innovative product. Maybe it's not in full production right now, but it's a way for small businesses to participate in the market that wasn't really there before. And I think that any time you have an opportunity to look at a capital fund or a non-appropriated fund source, it's really worth exploring. And it also might be advantageous relative to the regular small business contracting that happens in the standard acquisition cycle because there are picking and choosings going on right now among various types of small businesses. And if you're not one of the favored classes, even under the general area of small business, this also might be a, an enhanced opportunity. Tom, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so often there's a temptation to look at 
small businesses as a monolithic entity. But right now, we're really seeing that there are different types of small businesses that that point is really being driven home. So if you're not one of the small business socioeconomic groups that's currently in political favor, you have an opportunity to go somewhere uh, that maybe, you know, go to the outside lane and still get to the finish line. And this could be the outside lane for some of the small businesses. And you really want to be aware as a small business that, you know, I would call it sometimes the flavor of the month. Uh, we had a flavor of the month in small business contracting a couple of years ago. Now there's a different flavor of the month. So if you're not it, you have to work a little bit harder and look a little bit deeper in order to get business done. Above all, don't try to be plain vanilla. Nah, that's exactly right. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, I thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children 
plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, 
uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.